Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Very happy to uh, welcome Grace Bidalek back to the show. She's a writer, performer, and administrator uh, based on New York's Upper West Side. And she's also in charge of the Dissident Project, which is a little something that uh, is also going on with Young Voices. In fact, Grace, I'd like to ask you, for the sake of those meeting you for the first time, tell us a little bit about yourself. If you would also tell us just a little bit about the Dissident Project for those who may not have heard of it. Yeah, of course. I'm happy to. Brian, I'm so glad to be back on Moving Forward. This is one of my favorite programs to be on. You're a wonderful host. Um, thank you for having me. You're very um, kind. I, <laughs> of course. So I, I'm based on, I'm a writer, uh, performer, and director based on New York City's Upper West Side, um, which is lovely this time of year, by the way. we It's like walking Nora Ephron movie. Huge fan. Um, and uh, I have recently written for uh, the Daily Wire, the New York Daily News, uh, the New York Sun. Um, and in, in addition to that, I am the director of the Dissident Project. And what the Dissident Project project is, is a speaker's bureau for young people who have escaped authoritarian regimes. We've got 11 speakers from uh, countries around the globe um, who have escaped uh, these, these tyrannical governments. Um, and we find them speaking opportunities in American high schools. Um, we're really trying to combat this feeling of um, apathy and this sort of historical amnesia um, that we're witnessing um, in Gen Z um, and the generation after them as well. So that is what the Dissident Project is up to. You can see our lovely Tommy Nay on Fox and Friends today. Actually, she had a wonderful hit on Hamas's extremism, specifically on college campuses. So if you're looking for a little bit of Dissident Project content uh, to imbibe, um, she's done she's done some great work li- lately. Um, and then if you're looking to follow us on any sort of social media, our handle is just at Dissident P-R-O-J, um, both on Twitter and on Instagram. Thank you so much. Now, we're going to be talking about an article you've written about uh, BLM signaling support for Hamas. Wow. I mean, it's been a month since the the attacks in Israel and a lot has transpired. But um, Grace, bring us up to speed. Uh, BLM, Black Lives Matter. Um, We we learned about them really, I think, for the first time three summers ago. And Talk to me about the what are the implications of some of the, the connections between them signaling support for for Hamas and, and what we may have already learned along the way over the last three years? Right. A hundred percent. So I'll sort of take you back to the beginning of um, my narrative in this article, which was that um, I was walking up Columbus Street and this is just I was passing the sort of the ABC News headquarters. Um, and there's always this man who is selling books sort of in the open air, right? Like that's what he does um, for a living. And I, I make it a habit to stop. Um, and there was a book that caught my eye. Um, it was sort of painted in these like bright colors. And it was underneath these other sort of forgotten, uh, these forgotten books. And um, I went over and I picked it up. Um, and the title of the book uh, was When They Call You a Terrorist, a Black Lives Matter memoir by Patrice Kahn Colors and Asha Bandele with a foreword by Angela Davis. Um, and I was walking with a friend at the time who um, sort of paused with me and looked at the cover of the book and we both said, huh, this is interesting <laughs> and prescient and I think that we should probably bring this back. <laughs> um, you know, since the horrific uh, terrorist attacks that we saw in Israel on October seventh, uh, we've seen um, we've seen 
widespread support for Hamas, unfortunately, um, just, you know, exposing the incredible anti-Semitism and brain rot in our country, but specifically amongst young people and um, on college campuses. Uh, we've seen um, we've seen people who three years ago in 2020 were supporting uh, Black Lives Matter very openly, sort of social justice minded people posting black squares and self-flagellating saying, you know, um, it's time that we take some time away for, to, to, to educate ourselves. You know, it's not our black, our black friends jobs to do that's for us. Um, we're seeing those same people, um, come out in support of, uh, in support of Hamas. Uh, and you know, if people say they're in support of Palestine, um, I would ask why are you making no attempts to separate yourself from the terrorist group that perpetrated the attack? Um, and that, you know, the Palestinian people are really languishing under the jackboot of. Um, and so again, I think this is just sort of a natural connection, right? Patrice Khan Colors in 2015, uh, had even said, you know, Palestine is our generation, South Africa. If we don't step up boldly and courageously to quote unquote, end the imperialist project called Israel, we are doomed. Um, and this kind of attack is what happens when we take sort of critical race theory to its logical end. When the sort of comforting platitudes of this progressive identity politics, the, the language that we've seen for three years, this sort of simplistic oppressor and oppressed language actually lead uh, to violence, uh, which is fundamentally what that language is calling for. Um, and so, you know, we're seeing the quote unquote victimized act with imputed impunity, quote unquote, from the river to the sea, um, calling for uh, you know, the end of Israel and the genocide of the Jewish people. Now, Grace, I was going to facetiously say, well, now, if that was the case, though, with Black Lives Matter, we would have seen some kind of violence, I'm sure, over the last three years that, you know, could have yeah. clued us to whether or not, you know, we're, you know, that again, that uh, oppressor throwing off the or the oppressed throwing off the oppressor kind of thing. It's it's scary, though, what you're describing, though, the, the identity politics. And the thing that's scary about it is, it seems to work on a lot of levels besides just those who get caught up in the um, the really fanatical side like Hamas. And, and I would even say even like like Black Lives Matter, people feel like I have to choose a side. And sometimes sometimes it's hard to know. Well, but but is, is there a side that really I want to align myself with? Yeah. And this sort of rhetoric really supersedes any sort of critical thought. Right. We saw that in 2020 and we're seeing that now uh, specifically when, again, to be pro-Palestine is fundamentally, if you're thinking about it critically, to be pro-Israel. Like I said earlier, these these people, Palestinian people, Gazan people are languishing, as Barry Weiss said earlier um, in an interview with Walter Russell Mead, which was phenomenal, um, and sort of laid out the context um, in a really uh, poignant way. Um, she said, these people are languishing under the jackboot of a terrorist organization. Um, and if you want the best for the Palestinian people, if you want uh, uh, the best for civilians, both in Israel and in Palestine, in Gaza, um, you really must be pro-Israel in this circumstance. And this sort of rhetoric is, again, superseding any sort of deeper critical discussion um, about the facts on the ground. Now, I have to admit, I kind of get nervous when, when I hear the term terrorist being applied too liberally. And when people were saying, well, you know, Black Lives Matter are terrorists, 
mm-hmm. as much as I disagreed with them on some of the methodology and some of the, I mean, some of them came right out and said, look, we're, we're trained Marxists. As long yeah. as, as long as they weren't engaging in violent behavior, I'm like, I don't want to see that label, you know, used in Hamas's case. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, the, their, their actions bespeak this. Um, I, I'm curious, is, is this association costing Black Lives Matter in terms of its association or is this, you know, is this part of closing ranks and uh, they are in fact fellow travelers? Mm, that's a really great question. I mean, I think um, we saw an escal- a real escalation of violence without, with very little condemnation in 2020. So if you'll think back yeah. to that period of time, right, looters obviously leaving stores uncontested, assaulting police officers. Um, We saw young cops, mothers and fathers that were genuinely shot point blank in cop cars doing their jobs. Um, We saw a football star uh, that was shot while helping two women who had been mugged. We saw a 77-year-old police officer, um, you know, shot dead in front of a a pawn shop in in St. Louis. And again, the streaming or this, the shooting was, was streamed on Facebook live. (laughs) So, uh, it's not like people were, um, apologetic. Uh, and again, we didn't, we didn't hear much condemnation, especially from the people in charge. There was a lot of justification. There was a lot of celebration. And I think, um, unfortunately, of course, uh, the terrorist attack by Hamas in Israel was, uh, infinitely worse, sickening, um, really sickening. We're seeing the same lack of shame. We're seeing the same sort of justification. Um, we're seeing uh, horrific escalation uh, in violence. Um, and we're seeing, again, these sort of riots break out uh, full scale across the globe um, in a way that uh, has, has obviously escalated from what we saw in 2020, um, but is eerily reminiscent. It's definitely a time to be paying attention. <laughs> I mean, there's a, there's a lot going yeah. on. And uh, Grace Bodalek, thank you for what you are doing to, to keep us better informed. Um, for people who want to follow you again on, on social media, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, absolutely. Before I close, I just want to say this is really a time for us, especially in New York City, to be standing up for our our Jewish brothers and sisters. So um, I think it's, you know, as uh, Jews are incredibly visible in New York City, as one in four people is a Jew, um, let's 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 stand together with our with our Jewish brothers and sisters um, now at this time. So uh, if you want to follow my work, um, you can follow me at Grace underscore daily, D-A-L-E-Y. on Instagram, or you can go to Grace Daily Badalek, which is B-Y-D-A-L-E-K uh, dot com, and you can read all of my writing there. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome uh, Gary and Frankel back to the program. Gary, it is so good to have you back here again. For people meeting you for the first time, take a second, tell us a little bit about who you are. Thanks for having me back, Brian. I've been with Young Voices for a couple of years now, do a lot of writing on that front. But in my day job, I'm a PhD student in PK-12 educational leadership at Texas A&M University, where I mainly focus on uh, the arts, civics, humanities, education policy in general, everything under that sun. Yeah, I'm looking at an article that you had published recently on uh, American Institute for Economic Research uh, about uh, the ugly truths of school finance. And 
And I love the the very first question right out of the out of the shoot you ask is do public schools spend money responsibly? Why is it you're not going to get a one size fits all answer from from people you may ask that? Yeah, it's it's a structural problem with just the way that we govern and finance our public schools in general because everybody seems to think that public schools get all their money from the same pot and then they can use the money from that one pot for whatever it is they want. And that's not necessarily true because the typical public school gets money from your local property taxes, uh, from the state government, and certain grants and opportunities from the federal government as well. But the problem is, is that when a public school accepts money from a different governmental entity like the state or the feds, there are certain restrictions that come from that money. So it's not one pot of money that they can use on everything. It's three pots of money that have certain restrictions and qualifications on what they can and can't use it for. So that's sometimes why a school can't afford to hire more teachers, but can spend $30 million to build a football stadium. It's just different pots of money. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a good distinction. Something you point out too, though, and I, I've seen this in, in my own home state of Idaho. Um, it's not a lack of money that is the, the root problem of, of what's uh, you know, causing woes in American education. Yeah, and, and that front is really interesting because you can, if you ask any teacher, they'll tell you the district isn't paying for basic supplies in my classroom. The district isn't paying for basic materials. I'm having to spend so or so money, so or so amount of money out of pocket, and they're not wrong. They're telling the truth. It's not the amount of money in our school system that's the problem, though, because if you compare, and there's a lot of variation, of course, the average American school to any other country worldwide, we're fifth highest in spending per student in the world, which is very, very high. And many of the countries that are lower than us get more bang for their buck than we do. The problem isn't the amount of money that's in the system. It's a combination of some of the regulations involved on what public schools can and can't use their money for. But you also have that other hidden problem that where public schools do have the authority to say, I want to spend my money on this, they make very, very bad choices. No, I, I hear you. And and yet, uh, I don't think I've ever heard anybody advocating for public schools, particularly at, even at the local level, that wasn't in some way, shape or form saying, our students deserve more. But you mentioned some other areas where people don't really appreciate or there, there are some aspects of of uh, school finance that the average person if they're not really staying up on this they're probably not going to appreciate it. it's it's not intuitive how how those uh, finances apply absolutely because something to keep in mind is that the majority of school boards in the united states you have a couple here and there that are appointed but the vast majority are elected and what is it that elected officials want above all else? To get reelected. <laughs> and there's this ugly, ugly incentive that if a, somebody on an elected school board wants to get reelected, they have to go for this big, flashy project that everybody can see and appreciate because that's what voters seem to respond to. So that's how you get something like $50 million football stadiums or dazzling new facilities that nobody 
really needs, or if you're in a really wealthy district, maybe the entire band program gets a trip to Disney World. When in reality, if the objective is to improve student achievement, then investments that people don't see, like updated healing and cooling systems, or new floors, or better filters, or washing and dryer machines so that people from disadvantaged backgrounds don't have to walk back and forth the laundromat multiple times a day. Those types of investments really make a difference in terms of improving student achievement, but nobody can see or appreciate them. So there's no incentive for school boards to put money there as opposed to the shiny new football stadium. It's, it's a matter of trade-offs in the end. So, Gary, where does accountability come from in that case? Is it a matter of enough citizens paying attention that they're going, hey, 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 let's not be extravagant? Or um, is there is there another way that, uh, you know, that kind of spending can can be held to account to where, as you mentioned, it's it's actually going to the betterment of the students and not just bolstering the system itself? Exactly. Uh, I'm not sure there really is a clear solution to this problem, but I think there are a few things that could help. Uh, If you expand school choice, it can cause a little bit of renewed interest in a given district's financial accountability. So they'll have an additional incentive to spend their money responsibly, because if they do that, then you will attract more students to your district. But on the other hand, that could just create an uglier incentive to a bigger football stadium. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so even that's a little unclear. Um, you could reform accountability measures to prioritize student achievement um, over compliance with certain monetary regulations. And that could work. But what you end up having is wealthier districts where, let's say, the students are already doing well. Well, they're also going to build the bigger football stadium. So in the end, it comes down to this nasty trade-off where you can either advocate for really intense regulatory and accountability measures and completely hamstring districts from doing anything or prioritize local control, hope voters make the right decision, but understand and expect that there's going to be some bad decisions along the way. And in the end, it's picking which evil you find to be lesser. I kind of take it as uh, for granted that there's going to be bad decisions, whether they come from the top down or, you know, from the grassroots. My question then becomes, where are they easier to fix? Because my perception is the higher up the origination of the problem, the more difficult it's going to be to fix that problem. I would say that's a reasonable assumption. And if you were to ask me personally, the evil I prefer is local control, because at least hypothetically, you could just elect better people who won't spend money irresponsibly that's unrealistic but it's easier than trying to completely revamp these federal accountability and grant programs which are just a quagmire on their own right so i would rather start to engage in these reforms at the grassroots level where an individual or maybe a particularly virtuous community can have a little bit more of a say in how their money is spent here, here. And and I love how you point out, we sometimes forget this, but schools are subject to the same laws of economics as everybody else. And sometimes, I guess, when, when the taxpayers are a funding mechanism, it's hard to, to remember that. You know, it's this is not a, a piggy bank. 
Yeah, it, it really is. Uh, schools are a major public governmental entity, just like any other, and economics works the exact same way that it does for the federal government. It just doesn't feel like that because we rightly attach an, a, an additional sense of moral importance to our school systems. But economics is still economics. Gary, great as always to visit with you. For people who want to follow you on social media, where's the best place to find you? I'm most active on Twitter or X or whatever the heck it's called now at F-R-A-N-K-E-L-G-A-R-I-O-N. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Brian. Welcome back. This is Moving Forward with Young Voices. Third segment in today's show, we are happy to welcome uh, uh, Dylan Dean back to the program. Uh, Dylan, for those who have not met you before, tell us just a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, so my name is Dylan. I am uh, an electrical engineer by education, but I'm currently working as a software engineer. I have worked in liberty advocacy politics for some time, and now I'm just really focusing on tech freedom, especially in regards to artificial intelligence, the hot new thing. So, of course, they're trying to regulate it away. Well, it's uh, no, it's a very timely topic. And I I say this as someone who has finally decided to start taking it seriously. And the thing that strikes me about AI is it improves so quickly. It, it, It learns. And, you know, what was the the cutting edge iteration two weeks ago may not be today because it could advance that much in just a couple of weeks time. Yeah, I think it's a good thing because, I mean, current AI right now, once you get out of the specific things that was trained on, it can get kind of stupid. And and now we're starting to see things that are more generally applicable. So I think it's a good thing for people to have access to that assistance. Now, I also see a lot of people um, either playing on fears or maybe indulging fears of, well, but, you know, AI could be a very dangerous thing. And, and uh, as you point out in your article on American Thinker, um, Sometimes people want to compare it to uh, to nuclear weapons. You say that that's a that's a comparison does that does not hold up to scrutiny. Why is that? Yeah. So what makes nuclear weapons unique is that they are solely destructive, and that a nuclear weapon does not protect you from someone else's nuclear weapon. So the reason that we are safer for them being centralized is that. And the U.S. government can't stop a terrorist with a nuke with their own nuke. And I, I counter this with the, with the counterexample of firearms, where we all know a good guy with a gun can stop a bad guy with a gun. And the point I try to make here is that intelligence is more like a firearm in that it is a defensive tool rather than a nuclear weapon, which is solely destructive. No, I think that's a that's a fair distinction. And it, why is it so easy for us to... to be be led towards fear as it applies to AI? I mean, what is it, Dylan? Is it just the unknown that, that makes people want to believe that, oh, yeah, this is going to advance and, and enslave us someday? Yeah, I think that it's a combination of it being a new and novel thing that we as humans innately have a bias, a bias to be skeptical towards. 
and that it's such a complicated topic to drill down into and really understand that people tend to take the word of experts. They're, the experts are supposed to be there to help us understand complex topics, but when they choose to play off fear to try to seize power for themselves, then we can be led off track by that. Okay. Um, talk to me about uh, centralization versus decentralization. Um, it seems like this is a principle that uh, could apply in, in a number of other areas, in, in, you know, which would include AI. Yeah, so the, the idea as it applies to artificial intelligence is that we have numerous times as a society recognized that an imbalance in intelligence creates unsafe situations and that we need to try to protect people from that. That's why we have conservatorships to protect people who aren't mentally capable fully. It's why elder financial abuse is such a heinous crime and why it has its own category in law. And it's why we have things like the age of consent to protect children from manipulation by adults with more fully formed minds. And if we centralize AI in the hands of corporations or in the hands of governments, what we're doing is we're creating a new intellectual imbalance where the elites have access to more intelligence than we do. And this makes us susceptible to misinformation, to manipulation. It, it makes us effectively second-class citizens underneath the people who have a greater capacity to think and control us. Wow. That's, that's very compelling. So how do you get... Um, I, I think the Internet itself may be actually a pretty good example of this. How do you get those people who would benefit most from consolidating control over a particular medium to agree that, no, it's better to let it be, uh, you know, as self-regulating as possible? Isn't that essentially what we've done with the Internet? It is. And I think that, you know, we have the advantage here because we have the Internet. We have an easy way to distribute new AI models and Meta does this with their Llama models. They, they publish them. So you can download the weights, you can run the model on your own machine. And it's effectively like a smaller version of ChatGPT. You can fine tune it, train it on your own data. And just by doing this and engaging in open source and decentralized AI, we kind of undermine their argument because, well, you're saying that if we open source AI and we allow other people to have it, we'll have disaster, but it's already open source. I already have an AI model running on my desktop and I haven't created some biological weapon like you're saying is going to happen. So what's up with that? No, like I say, you know, even people in positions of power, their imaginations tend to run, too, with the idea of, of where AI could go. Um, Dylan, tell me this. As you look at this, and keeping in mind, we, we still, still still seem to be fairly early in the, uh, the age of AI. What do you see being some of the biggest impacts or changes that we're likely to see in our day-to-day -day lives as a result of AI finding its place you know, in, in our society? Yeah, I, I think that... You know, as far as the technology itself goes, I think we're approaching a ceiling without a another paradigm shift, like what happened in 2017 with the introduction of Transformers. I think we're kind of maxing out that architecture. But there's a lot of room for it to be implemented in other areas. And, you know, we're kind of seeing this in, like, 
automated assistants for websites that are more intelligent than you know you go to like a bank website that's got this chat bot that's just an idiot and it's like those are getting smarter now <laughs> they actually understand yeah. what you're saying and the uh same thing with like phone bots where you have to say a certain keyword and you don't know what it is if they're actually conversational ai it becomes easier to do things like that uh personal assistants like siri getting smarter being better able to understand what you're saying I think there's a lot of upside for consumers coming once this new technology starts to get integrated into existing products. And and again, outside of the, the question of, well, who's going to control it? Will it be centralized or decentralized? What are some of the biggest drawbacks you see um, that will, will come along with these innovations? Well, I, I think that there's going to be, uh, over the next decade or so, an impact to the labor market. I mean, a lot of like personal assistant type jobs, jobs that revolve primarily around manipulating text mm -hmm. are going to be, you know, potentially automated away to an extent. You still need humans there. They make mistakes. You need, you need people to check the work and all this. And the other one is, and I hate to use left coded terminology because I don't want to hand them a win, but <laughs> misinformation, it becomes easy when creating novel text is free to spread information and make it appear as if it's coming from an actual human. So we're going to need to solve that. Luckily, uh, we also have AI now, and this is an example of how it can play off of each other and we can defend against AI induced problems with AI is we can use artificial intelligence to distill information, to give it access to the internet, to run fact checking on what we're seeing for us, to detect AI generated content potentially, although that's not really working super well so far, but. Interesting. Like I say, I, I feel like I've just barely dipped my toe in the water, but um, there there's a lot going on here. And, and I, I don't think I disagree with people who are characterizing this as as much as the internet, the shift to you know online, everything has has impacted our world. We're likely to see kind of a similar shift in how AI is going to find its way into everyday stuff th that we're doing. So I guess don't scoff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I you can't expect people who aren't engaging in tech at the at the cutting edge to really have formed opinions about this and built up an understanding to allow them to form opinions. And again, this is why I look at, you know, Sam Altman talking about how AI is going to capture the light cone of all of humanity. It's like, you're doing a disservice to the people who look up to you and trust you on this topic by using that influence to fear monger instead of be honest and, and lead with hope. Yeah. Well, clear, clearly there are people who fear what it could do in terms of, you know, damage or in terms of too much freedom. Um, we are unfortunately up against the end of our segment here. Uh, Dylan, tell everybody the best place that they can follow you on social media. I am Dylan C. V. Dean everywhere. That's Twitter, Instagram. You can go to DylanDean.dev and that's me. You can find all my articles there and links to all my socials as well. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you.
Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. This is our fourth and final segment today. Very happy to welcome uh, Harrison Griffiths, who is a Young Voices contributor. And Harrison, for the sake of those uh, getting to know you, tell us a little about yourself. Yeah, so uh, as well as doing Young Voices, I'm, uh, my, my day job uh, is uh, in communications at the Institute of Economic Affairs, which is a, a free market classical liberal think tank uh, in Westminster in London. So I'm, I'm looking at an article that you had penned for uh, Spectator.org about uh, the British free speech slippery slope has become a cliff. And yeah. Harrison, I don't keep you know a, a completely you know narrow focus on what's going on in Great Britain, but I have been seeing stories like this uh, pop up for some time about how it's harder and harder to speak your mind and and not run afoul of the state. Give us some of the examples of, of why uh, free speech is more and more um, under under some kind of pressure from from authority. Yeah, well, uh, it, it all starts really with some well-intentioned pieces of legislation in the 1980s, um, mostly uh, you know things like the Public Order Act 1986, which try to outlaw some of the most repugnant, inciting types of speech, like racial abuse, for example. Um, but unfortunately, you know, as is often the case with with the government, the, the slippery slope has in fact become a cliff that. Over time, there has been this ratcheting up of what constitutes uh, that most vile and repugnant form of speech. And you see that this is one of the many problems. I mean, I personally have a, a moral view that that freedom of speech should be an individual right, regardless of how rational and repugnant your expression might be. But I mean, even beyond that, um, yeah. so it becomes a cliff precisely because when you seed in the first instance, that even speech that is very unpopular and that it is objectively vile uh, should be subject to censorship, uh, you give the government the authority to regulate, uh, to define the parameters of what is you know, vile, irrational and repugnant enough, what is protected political speech and what isn't. And now we find ourselves in a situation today where you know, you're more likely to be arrested for silently praying near an abortion clinic or for making a tasteless joke, um, you know, uh, about a, a football tragedy, than you are for calling uh, for jihad against Jewish people um, and you know calling for their blood. It's just really quite a, a, a tragic state of affairs, and looks only set to get worse. Yeah, when you when you reference the uh, the woman Isabel von Spruce arrested in Birmingham after being questioned for silently praying within the buffer zone of an abortion clinic. I remember that story, you know, making some some rounds on the on the internet, but I, I'm curious what kind of reaction that story generated. Did, did, did people talk about it? Were they aware of it in Great Britain? Yes, yeah, so there was uh, quite a campaign, at least mostly on the political right, to try um, and and draw attention to this and to, to help Isabel Isabel Vaughan Spruce defend herself. Uh, I think in the end she she has been completely exonerated and is no longer under legal jeopardy. I believe, um, thanks to in part to an organisation I think they're called Alliance Defending Freedom, who are um, you know a religious organisation that defends the rights, freedom of speech, expression, and conscience for religious people and i'm certainly not a religious person at all um but that really ought to be beside the point um you know when, when you're talking about somebody's right to their own conscience somebody's right 
to speak or hold a placard, which I think is a completely fine to do, thing to do. But then when we're talking about policing the thoughts inside people's head, you know, we are on a really dangerous road at the moment. And regardless of where you are on, on the issue of, of abortion in particular, I think anybody who's intellectually honest understands that it's extremely difficult. You know, the, the right to voice a view, particularly on a topic that is such a moral quagmire, um, is not just you know something each person has, in my view, the inherent right to do, but something that you need in a society to understand where you're going right and where you're going wrong. If if people aren't able to to vote against you know the established order of things, uh, we, we're going to have a complete blind spot as to what we need to change um, and where we've got things wrong in the past. You point out in your article that speech is not coercive. In other words, speech yes. alone isn't going to prevent someone from exercising a right. So it, it doesn't need to be balanced with other rights. Um, is it deliberate that uh, that political authority or people in political authority tend to ignore this? Do they set that aside for, for their own considerations of, you know, what they want to see happen? Yes, I think so. And and this is, this is the problem that, you know, I, I spoke about a minute ago is the second you cede any ground on freedom of speech beyond... You know, something like uh, I think the U.S. Supreme Court pretty much nails it with its First Amendment test, which is uh, incitement to imminent, imminent lawless action. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, once you once you start seeding ground beyond that, the, the content of people's speech ought to be placed. You do find yourself on this very dark road where each set of politicians and the people behind them that comes in, you know, they're going to bring with them their own concept of what type of speech is beyond the pale. Um, and I certainly have my own conception of that. You know, I think racist abuse, for example, is well beyond the pale of what should be tolerated in a society. Um, but this is about you know the use of force and the use of coercion. And inevitably, you're going to end up with you know certain people with unpopular political viewpoints being targeted. Um, and and you know in, in this case. Uh, we, we see, uh, I think the, the example I referenced was Rishi Sunak answering a question about this in Parliament from a leader of the Democratic Unionist Party, a very conservative party from Northern Ireland. Um, and he is talking about you know balancing speech against other rights, in this case, I guess, the right to seek an abortion. You know, as if those things need to be balanced at all. They don't. Speech is not coercive. And in fact, the, you know, we at the Institute of Economic Affairs released a paper um, last week talking about how this ideology that speech can be a type of violence has you know developed a stranglehold over many of the most prominent institutions in civil society and most importantly of course government you know there are now very few members of parliament who won't concede that certain peaceful expression is not the same thing as violence and it's not it never can be and the government has absolutely no right to use violence against you for what is ultimately a peaceful action no matter how much you might despise the words that somebody says well it seems like the op- the uh, definitions that they're operating under right now are very elastic and uh, and can shift or change at any given time um, which you know is is handy for someone wanting to um, you know put coercion on somebody or, or, or exercise some uh, some pressure on someone but at the same time it leaves everybody else feeling like I don't know what I can still safely say or do it, it leaves them uh, perpetually off balance well I mean this is a, another problem you know a secondary problem to the to the principle and the overall direction for me but still very much a, a key issue is that and the law is is all over the place. It gives you know the the the, the executive, I suppose, the, the government, but more importantly, just like cops on the ground, um, 
a very wide berth, particularly under the Public Order Act, which tried to limit speech which could, in effect, incite a riot. And um, you know, when the police are given a wide berth to do that, they are inevitably going to follow the path of least resistance. So what we had, you know, in another really quite staggering turn of events the other day, was that there was a, a rather large um, pro-Palestine anti-Israel march in London, uh, which, by the way, I think they ought to have the right to express their views on. Um, and uh, somebody turned up to that to counter-protest with an English flag. And as part of this, this march uh, in London last week, uh, people were saying all sorts of really quite repugnant things about Jewish people and Israel. Um, uh, but when two guys came up and count, like, I think it was literally a group of three or four guys came up and counter protested with an English flag, the police went up to them and warned them that they might be committing an offence under the Public Order Act in order to incite violence by merely being there with an English flag. And this this is another really important point that I want wow. to address as well, is, is that I, you know, I've written recently um, about how a lot of people on the political right who are usually speaking up for free speech because speech laws are disproportionately enforced against people who they, they generally agree with are now calling for the same treatment to be given to, to people who are protesting in favour of Palestine. That's, again, still wrong in principle. Um, but also it's you know just inevitably going to backfire on them. You, know, you can pass new laws or you can tell the police new things uh, to do new things uh, in order to suppress the speech of... Palestinian rights protesters, but it's going to backfire on you. And that, I think, was the perfect demonstration of it. A few blokes rock up with an English flag. You know, suppressing the speech of, of pro-Palestine protesters is not going to stop it being disproportionately enforced against people on, you know, broadly speaking, the political right. Harrison, I appreciate you being a voice of reason at a time where there there are not a lot of uh, such voices to be found. Uh, again, we're talking with Harrison Griffiths. He is a Young Voices contributor. And Harrison, for people who want to follow you on social media, where do you recommend they go? Uh, it would be uh, at Real Harrison G on Twitter for me. Uh, but I can also recommend that people follow uh, at IA London on Twitter and also subscribe to IA London on YouTube. Very good. Thank you so much. Let's talk again soon. Thank you, Brian.